Can you believe it's been over 16 years now that uh, the Lord planted Oak Hill here in Santa Clarita? 16 years. Using Tandy and myself and just a handful of other couples who were committed to establishing just a very simple Bible church here in our hometown. It was a, to be a place where two things would be emphasized. Number one, that we would put the exposition of Scripture in the center of everything that we do. And number two, that we would build a fellowship that would love each other well. And that was the whole plan. The, that was literally the entire plan. <laughs> By all professional standards of ministry, we did every single thing wrong. We didn't read any specific books about how to plant a church. We didn't go to any conferences or workshops about how to plant a church. We didn't even study other churches that had successfully planted a church. We simply said, let's start gathering. Let's make those two guiding principles. Let's put those at the front of everything we do. And then let's just see what God does. And that was the whole plan. Looking from the outside, any expert would have said, these people are not ready. And that church is not going to make it. And today, looking back with time and experience, I understand why they would have said that. I really do. But when you analyze a ministry from the outside, the one thing that you cannot forget to factor in is the one thing that matters most, and that is God's sovereign will. Psalm 135.6 says, the Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on the earth. So if it fits within his eternal purposes, then it's going to go on. And so I marvel to this day at his grace in sustaining us, how much he has taken us from where we were 16 years ago and matured us as a church and refined us in so many ways. And he did that by walking us through the highest of, of joys, but also some of the hardest trials you can imagine. And by his grace, we're still here this morning. And I, and I figure every day that we're still together is another miracle in a series of prior miracles. And that's the way you look at the ministry, right? Because without his grace, without his power, we would still not be standing today. 16 years ago, we were just naive. And we were unaware of the pitfalls that lay ahead. We could not have imagined how strongly the enemy would come against us. We were inexperienced. We were flawed believers trying to find our way and just hoping God would keep us afloat. And as I thought about that this week, I was meeting with some folks here who have been attending the church and telling the story of Oak Hill, as I thought about it this week, it reminds me of, of what we're about to study in our passage this morning in John 17. Remember the context of John 17. Jesus is about to go away. It's the final night that he has with his disciples. He's about to be taken away. And his disciples are exactly what I just uh, described to you, naive, inexperienced, flawed men. And they're about to face the world without Jesus' physical presence. They are not ready. At least from the world's perspective, they are not ready. Think about this. These are the men who very soon God is going to entrust the spread of the gospel throughout the known world. That's amazing, right? How is it possible that this was God's plan? How many times have you read the story and got, really, this was God's plan? These guys? I mean, think about this. Oh, that was going to be so good. Back. There we go. Think about this. Guys that look like this. This was God's plan to change the world. Lord, what were you thinking when you picked guys like this? What experience do these guys have in teaching and preaching? Right? Do they have formal theological training? 
Do they have a, a track record of, of growing a ministry? I mean, are they connected to big donors? How do you get a church off the ground if they don't have connections to big donors, right? They've got to know how to recruit and manage a competent team of leaders. No? No? This thing's going to flop, isn't it? These are simple Galilean men. They don't have formal education. They don't have carefully honed leadership skills. Their expertise is in things like fishing and farming. They're going to get eaten alive by the religious establishment. And this whole movement is going to die along with their rabbi. That's what it would have looked like from the outside on this night that Jesus is going to be taken away. Now, here's the reality. Here's what we actually know looking back. God intentionally chose men like this to accomplish his will his way. They were earthen vessels into which he would place his treasure so that the surpassing greatness of his power would be seen and not the wisdom of man. Boy, we, we get that mixed up all the time, don't we? God does things that we cannot imagine for the purpose of showing that it's his power and not man's. He chooses the weak things of the world and the foolish things of the world so that his glory shines all the brighter. And this is what's such good news for us, for thus, those of us sitting here today. Perhaps God can use foolish and weak people like us because he did it with these guys. Perhaps you and I can do things above and beyond what we can even imagine. And if you doubt that, then let's turn in the Bible and we'll read the story. Go to John 17. John chapter 17. I love how God teaches you lessons over a period of time. I know some of you guys are you're young and you're like, I don't have this track record yet. It's coming. And you'll look back after 16 years and go, oh, okay. Okay, I see his hand. I see what he was doing. I, I see what I was back then. I see what he's done in my life. And man, what a joy it is to be able to look back as you get to be my age and to see how God refines us. All right, as we learned last Sunday, chapter 17 is called the high priestly prayer of the Lord. To many, the holiest ground in all of scripture where Jesus standing on the earth is praying to his father in the heavenly realm. So imagine being a fly on the wall. Imagine being there and hearing this, God praying to God. This is quite a moment. So the words we're going to read in just a moment are spoken aloud in these final moments that Jesus has with the entire group of disciples before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And knowing what he's about to face and knowing what these 11 men are about to face, what does the Lord do in his final moments? He prays, naturally. He seeks the face of his Father and he seeks to intercede in prayer for his friends. Now, last Sunday we looked at verses 1 through 5 and the focus of those first five verses was really about Jesus and about his relationship to his Father and the shared glory that they have together. In this section we're about to read, now the, the, the focus shifts away from Jesus and towards the disciples. Let's back all the way up to verse 1. We'll read last week's passage again and then read down through verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. That's ominous, right? The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, all humanity, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, 
glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And what a statement of a deity, right? Of divine origin here. The equality of the Father and the Son that is rooted in those five verses. All right, today's passage, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So let me share with you up front the three pieces to this message so that you can track with us as we go along. First of all, we're going to see Jesus declare his mission complete. Number two, we're going to look at the readiness of the disciples for him to go away. And third, we'll focus on Jesus' real concerns for his friends as he intercedes on their behalf in prayer. Sound good? All right, let's go back to verse 6. If I was going to put a summary title on this passage, and particularly verses 6 through 8, I would call it mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. This is Jesus saying, Father, I've done my job. I have finished the task that you have given to me. He starts in verse 6 by saying, Father, I've manifested or revealed your name to these men, speaking of these 11 disciples. After three years together, I've I've shown them you, Father. I've shown them your divine attributes. I've shown them your holy character. I've shown them your glory. How? How? In Christ. Remember what he said back in John 10, I and the Father are one, he said. Later in chapter 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus can confidently say on this final night, I've done this. In me they have seen you, Father. And he can declare, mission accomplished. These 11 men know who I am, they know who you are, and they are as equipped as they can possibly be for what's about to come next. And so for Jesus, what's left? Just the cross. Yes, it's the most agonizingly painful part of it, but it's as good as done. Jesus says already, I'm not of this world. It's 100% assured. The salvation of these 11 men is 100% assured. So is their ongoing abiding relationship with the Savior forever. And soon the Spirit of God is going to come and indwell them, and the Spirit will pick up the work that Jesus started to train these men And the Spirit will sanctify them in greater knowledge and understanding. And so with all this secured, God the Son can now lift his eyes to the heavens. And he can pray with a heart of contentment. He can pray confidently that he has done what the Father sent him to do. He can now look forward to returning to that rightful place. Remember I mentioned last week, the cross is Jesus' way home. He can look forward to enjoying once again the glory that he had with the Father before the world was made. This is a big moment. Now, before we go into the second point, I want to draw your attention back to something that we talked about last Sunday, but again is 
And, and Grant and I were talking before the service about how in Jesus's prayer, he kind of circles around and he overlaps some very important themes. And he does it here with God's sovereignty over salvation. Look at the full text of verse 6 again and see how God is sovereign in salvation. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Now, I know that there are, there are many well-meaning, wonderful Christians who are uncomfortable with this type of language. But what Jesus says here is very straightforward and clear. There is a portion of humanity that God intends to save. In Scripture, they're called the chosen or the called or the elect. And they have belonged to God from the very beginning. They were yours, Jesus says. And once this elect, once they're, they're born into the world, they become like everybody else, right? Under Adam's curse, dead in their sins, children of wrath, destined to perish until God draws them to himself. As for the disciples, this was their condition they were born into. This was their destiny under the wrath of God until that day that Jesus walked along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and saw Andrew and Peter and said, follow me. Jesus sovereignly chose them and said, follow me. Those men weren't worthy of that. They weren't worthy of that calling like us. They weren't all that special. The simple theological truth is they belonged to God. They'd been marked out from the beginning by his sovereign grace and by his sovereign choice. And as Jesus says here in verse 6, God the Father took them out of the world. They were born into the world. He takes them out and he gives them to the Son so that they will be saved. This is how Paul would describe this process later in Colossians. There we go. Colossians chapter 1. The Father rescued us. Think about that word. We were born into this world under the wrath of God, but we were rescued. Rescued us from the domain of darkness. Do we see any darkness in the world right now? And transferred us. Picked us up by the scruff of the neck, right? <laughs> transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is our story too. This is the disciple's story. This is our story. And if this doesn't make your heart sore, then I don't know what will. That the creator of the universe who knows your name, who knows you inside and out, would mark you out among all the population of the earth, call you his own, and then give you as a gift to his son and say, I want this one saved. How can anything be greater than that truth? Don't take it for granted. Now, I know I emphasized this last Sunday, but I'll say it again. You as a Christ follower are a love gift from the Father to the Son. You're part of his bride, his chosen bride, a gift of love, your name written in the Lamb's book of life. These are theological truths that we stand on by faith, amen? Friends, this isn't intended, this is important, this isn't intended just to make you feel good, to feel good about God, to feel good about yourself, but it means everything in terms of how we view our life how we view this world we live in, how we live. Again, in the words of, of Paul, he says, do you not know that your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit? You've been transferred. You're out of the domain of darkness if you're a Christ follower. And you're in this new kingdom. Do you not know now your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who lives in you? That you're not your own? You're no longer your own. So what? 
You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So if Jesus is Lord of your life, it means you've been, you've been plucked out of this world. And you've been given to Jesus, transferred into his kingdom, his kingdom, adopted into his eternal family. And he has promised you, when you pass from this life, an internal inheritance that's beyond your wildest imagination. So glorify God. In light of that, glorify him with all of who you are. How can that not change the way you live to know these things? Glorify him in your body, in your life, in your marriage. Glorify him in your good works, in your attitude, in your priorities, in your compassion for the lost, in the way you love your neighbor, in the way you serve others. Glorify him in exercising your gifts in the church. In all things, give thanks to the Lord and put his glory on display. And listen, embracing these truths is also the key to enduring hard times, right? We can sit here and go, oh man, the Lord is so good. Look what he's done. But listen, hard times are coming. You've been promised tribulation. Well, we fall back on these same truths when we go through trials. This is what gets us through, right? This hostile world that we live in has utter contempt for you. If you haven't figured that out yet, this is the news. And it's going to only grow. They have utter contempt for you. They will mock your beliefs. They will despise you. You're going to be hated. We're promised this, right? You're always going to be targets of the enemy. But the end of the day, in light of these truths, so what? We can get ourselves so worked up about every little thing. So what? If God is for you, who can stand against you? If you've been chosen by the Father, given as a love gift to the Son, well then what can the world really do to you? So fall back on this truth, amen? So listen, sovereignty. It's all throughout this, this prayer. That's the really great side of sovereignty. But there's another side to his sovereignty which also comes out in this passage which we have to look at. Because while these 11 men with Jesus on that night had belonged to God, had been marked out for salvation, there's a 12th who didn't belong to God. And we have to look at that too. Drop down to verse 12. While I was with them, that means the disciples, I was keeping them in your name, Jesus says, which you have given me, and I guarded them. By the way, that, that term guarded, this too is an important part of Jesus accomplishing his mission on the earth. Like any good shepherd, one of his highest priorities was guarding his flock. And by the way, here at Oak Hill, we take this deadly serious. The seven men who are elders in this church, we function as under-shepherds, underneath Christ, and we put a high priority on guarding the flock that's been entrusted to us. We strive by the power of the Spirit to guide and protect the sheep, to always correct and to keep them. And this is what Jesus did in his day. He guarded his little flock of men. He says, I guarded them, and not one of them perished, or not one of them was lost, but who? The son of perdition. So that, purpose statement, he was lost so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And man, this, this is a really hard principle, right, for us to accept. For finite human beings who cannot see the eternal picture, this is a really hard truth for us to receive and process through. G Judas is being described here as a man ordained in the role of betrayer of the Son of God. That's tough. And as hard as that is to accept, there is no other way, if you're going to take Scripture seriously, there's no other way to interpret who Judas was. 
other than by this truth. Because long before this Passover night, the Hebrew scriptures had indicated that there would be a false friend in the circle of the Messiah. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's found in Psalm 41, and I'll, I'll put it on the screen in just a moment. But in Psalm 41, David is talking about the enemies that have come against him. And listen, we all expect enemies to come against us, but then David talks about the, the gut-wrenching pain of having a close friend who puts a knife in your back. And this is what Jesus is referring to. Here's the passage, Psalm 41. David says, My enemies speak maliciously about me. What do they say? When will he die and be forgotten? Man, that, if an enemy says that about you, that's an enemy. When are you going to die and be forgotten? When one of them comes to visit, he speaks deceitfully. He stores up evil in his heart. All who hate me whisper together about me. They plan to harm me. Something awful has overwhelmed him, and he won't rise again from where he lies. In other words, yep, something awful came upon him, and he died. Good. Now, we expect that from enemies, but here comes the key verse, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, that's the key phrase, has raised his heel against me. And now you know why at the upper, uh, in the upper room at that table, when John leans into Jesus and says, who's the betrayer? Jesus says what? The one who dips the bread is the one. The one who dips the morsel of bread is the one. So Judas is the son of perdition, or more simply translated, the son of destruction. He is a man who is sovereignly doomed to perish. Sovereignly doomed to perish. There's only one other person in Scripture called by that name, the son of destruction. And it's the final Antichrist who will come before Christ returns. 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2, he is called the son of destruction. So this puts Judas in very bad company. Now, the question is often asked, why does Jesus mention Judas in this prayer? Why bring this up at all? And the answer is, remember, he's intentionally praying out loud so that his disciples can hear him. And I have no doubt that he wants to make sure that these 11 guys understand that Judas never belonged to the Father, that I haven't lost him, because this is going to add to their assurance of salvation. Jesus wants them to hear that none perished, hear this now, except the one who had to perish. The one prophesied to eat that morsel of bread. The one prophesied to get up and go out into the night and to raise up his heel against the Son of God. It's tough. So on the one hand, we can say, okay, Judas had a role to play according to God's, God's eternal decree. On the other hand, we can also affirm, and this is important, Judas was not a robot that was pre-programmed to betray Christ against his will. Judas did what he truly wanted to do. It was in his heart to betray the Lord. And when Satan entered into him, then the deed was surely going to be done. So as we step back and look at theology like this, two things can be true. Because scripture says both of them are true. God ordained it. He planned it. And he brought it to pass. And at the very same time, Judas acted out of his own wicked desire. He did what he wanted to do, and therefore he's held eternally responsible for it. Yikes, right? It's tough. Okay, let's move on to the second point. I guarantee this one will be shorter than that. What about the faith of the disciples? How ready were they? 
This is so important because this is, again, a big moment in the life of the disciples. How can Jesus be so certain that he's accomplished his mission when these guys, uh, they're not really ready? How, how are they going to survive this? What's about to come? Well, look at Jesus' report at the end of verse 6. He says, they've kept your word, Father. Not words, but words, singular, meaning the entire truth, the body of truth that Jesus had taught them over the past three years. And this verb that, that is used here for kept, tereo, means to attend carefully to something. So here's what Jesus is saying. These men have received the body of truth about you, Father. They have attended carefully to it, and they believe. In this moment, they believe. And then in verses 7 to 8, Jesus confirms two more key theological truths that the disciples had made their own. Look at it, verse 7. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. That's the first thing that they had figured out. Everything that you have given me is from you. And the second one is further down in verse 8. They truly understand, understood that I came forth from you. They believe that you sent me. So the disciples were convinced that Jesus had come from God. And they believed in the divine origin of everything that he had taught them. So the best way to describe it is right now they have a primitive faith. They have a sort of childlike faith. They, they, they can't possibly know all that we know looking back. They, they can't understand at this point the purpose of the cross or the fact that Jesus is going to be you know, risen from the grave. They couldn't know that. But on this night, Jesus confirms the basics. Their faith is real. They believe. There's roots to what they believe, and that's so important. It was enough for Jesus to look forward to going back to the Father, right? To go back to his glorious position, knowing that soon the Spirit would come and finish the job. That's the thing. Jesus knows what they don't know at this point, and that is, I'm going away to be with the Father, but the Spirit's going to come and remind you guys of everything that I've taught. So he's not leaving them alone. So they're ready to an extent, primitive faith, childlike faith, but the Spirit will come. And Jesus has not abandoned them. He said it. I will not leave you as orphans. We will continue to have this abiding relationship as vine and branches. They're ready enough. Let's put it that way. Okay, part three of our study, and this one is really the key. This is huge. Verse nine, Jesus says, I ask on their behalf. Just stop there for a second. That that is the very definition of what we call intercession. Putting yourself in the place of another and then petitioning the Lord for them. This is intercession. But then look what Jesus says next. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but only for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, we have to be careful not to misinterpret what Jesus is saying here. If, we wanted to, if I wanted to make a case to you that, well, God doesn't really care about the world, doesn't really care about lost people, I could rip this statement out of context and use it as a proof text, but that's a bad idea because Jesus does not intend to say, I have no love for the world or I have no concern for the world. And we know that's true because that would contradict Scripture. We know that God does care for his creation. He does care for the collective mass of humanity that is made in his image. In fact, it was the, out of love for the world that God sent Jesus into the world in the first place to take on flesh and to die as a ransom for sin. So he does care for the world. So then why does Jesus say this? I'm not interceding for the world. Well, 
the context makes it very simple. On that night, again, we've got we to put, put ourselves in the sandals of that night. In those final moments, Jesus is really narrowly focused on these 11 guys. This is what's on his heart. They're about to go through this very serious trial. Jesus is seriously concerned for them at this point. So at this point, he's not generally interceding for the world. He's really focused solely on them. Does that make sense? It's just a contextual thing. Because I know I've, I've heard people say, see, God doesn't care about lost people from this statement. And that's dangerous, right? He says, I ask on their behalf. And again, this, this is the whole reason why this is called the high priestly prayer. Because of that statement. Because back in this day, that is what the high priest of Israel did. For the nation of Israel, for all of its people, he would go into the Holy of Holies, right? On the most sacred day on the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. And he would approach the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, with fear and trembling, right? Because if you get this wrong, you could be struck down dead. It's that holy and sacred. But he would come representing the entire nation of Israel, right? Representing all the people. This one man on this one day would then sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat over the ark, right? As an atonement for sin. But first, he did something that's very important to understand. Most of us know about the blood on the mercy seat, but first, he burned incense on the altar of incense, which was in the holy place just outside of the veil. And this is very important because in the Old Testament, incense is almost always connected to prayer. And this is what Jesus is doing on this night, praying for his people. For example, I'll give you a couple of examples. Psalm 141, as part of David's prayer, he says, Give ear to my voice when I call to you, Lord. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. Even in the New Testament, in Revelation, Revelation 5, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, and they're holding a harp and bowls of incense, which is said to be the prayers of the saints. So there's this connection between incense and prayer. Now, I'm going to put an image on the screen. Some of you guys know what this image is, right? This is what the, the holy place in the tabernacle and later in the temple would have looked like. And I've circled for you where the altar of incense is in that holy place. It's just outside the veil. What's behind the veil? The Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, right? And then you have on the two sides, you've got the great candelabra, which is the great lampstand, and you've got the table of showbread. Okay, so it's good to know that. The offering on the altar of incense was an essential part of the daily services in the temple, both morning and evening. At each burnt offering service, not only was the blood of the lamb shed, but this incense was burned on that altar. So day and night, picture it now, the, the smell of this incense is filling the space on the Temple Mount. And at those specific times, when the incense is being burned, the Jewish people would then lift up their prayers to Yahweh. And the picture that's being given is, as the prayers went up into the heavenly realms, it's like the incense rising up to the Lord, and it was a sweet smell for him. It was a, a lovely fragrance in his nostrils. Now, it's important to recognize a few things about that altar. The positioning of it is very important. It stands right outside the veil, but it's positioned right in front of the ark and the mercy seat where God's presence is manifested. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it was holy to the Lord, so it too had to be cleansed by the blood of the sacrifice. And then the last thing, number three, it was required by Leviticus 6.13 to be burning constantly. The fire was never 
to go out. And so it was managed and overseen by the officiating priests of the day. So you look at all this, and you're like, well, why does that matter to us? Because it's all foreshadowing for what we would receive later as New Testament believers, a high priest who intercedes for us. So the altar serves as a picture of the intercession of Christ for us. What is it that allows our prayers to come before the Lord? Only the blood of the sacrifice. Only the shed blood of Christ allows us to come to the throne of grace. The veil was opened to us through the blood of the sacrifice. The position of that altar, right in front of the mercy seat, is a picture of our advocate, Jesus standing in the presence of the Father, interceding for us. And the incense that burned continually on the altar is a symbol of his mediation that never ceases. He is constantly, forever unending, interceding for us. So we have this beautiful picture. And knowing these things then, you look into the New Testament and you read all these statements in the book of Hebrews about Jesus as our high priest. I'll give you a few of them. It says, first of all, that in taking on flesh, Jesus was made like us. Why? So that he could wrestle with humanness, so that he could understand us. Hebrews 4 says he's a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He has felt what it means to be human. So he says he is one who's been tempted in all things, as we are, but without sin. Hebrews says he's become our merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for our sins. And now, by ascending back to the Father, we have this perpetual high priest who, the Bible says, has passed through the heavens. He stands before the throne of grace as our advocate, as our prayers rise up to the Lord. He is holy and sinless and undefiled, separate from sinners and exalted in the presence of his Father. And that is where he lives to make intercession for his bride, for us. And this is why we say, pray. You have this great privilege of prayer. You have an advocate before the Father. As your prayers come up, a sweet smell in his nostrils. An advocate before us. So the next time that you stop and pray, picture this. That these symbols aren't given to us in the Bible just so we can go, oh, that's neat. They're given to us so that we can live out the, the fullness of this foreshadowing and really see that as our prayers rise to the Lord, think of that incense coming up from the altar and know that Jesus, our advocate, our high priest, is there before the throne of grace. Praise him for that. Praise him for a faithful and merciful high priest. Intercession matters. Okay, let's look now at the content of Jesus' prayer. So Jesus intercedes for his guys. What does he actually, what does he actually pray for? What is Jesus' greatest concern on this night? Look at verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, knowing that his departure is at hand. And yet they, the disciples, they are still in the world. That's a concern. I'm leaving. They're still here. He loves these men deeply. Can never forget that. This was not a robotic relationship. He loves these men deeply. He is rightly concerned for them. Up until this point, he has protected them. He's guarded them. He's been their ever-present guide. But now they're going to be on their own. And Jesus knows heavy trials are coming. Their faith is going to be tested severely. 
as I was, it's so funny, this was late last night when I get a little loopy as I'm writing. And I started, I started, I, something came to me. I'm like, I, you never want to compare yourself with Jesus. That's a bad idea. But I remember feeling something maybe parallel to this way back in the day. Um, the first time I drove Chandler, my daughter, to high school. She was in ninth grade. And I watched her leave my car, small as she was, and I looked at the crowd of kids and I said, there's boys with facial hair. And they were looking at my daughter. <sighs> and I, I had to drive away. I couldn't, just, I couldn't get out of the car and humiliate her and walk her into class, right? Because I want to protect my girl. But I had to drive away. It was hard. It was really, really hard. You know what I did on that drive home? I prayed. I prayed. So Jesus is like, I, I'm going. And, and, and you guys whom I love so much, you're still here. So he prays for them. That's the right response, right? So he prays for them. He says, Holy Father. Now I've got to stop there for a second. Holy Father. It's the only time you see that phrase in the Bible. What man on earth is sometimes called Holy Father? Pope. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. There is only one Holy Father. It is only God. No man ought to ever claim that title. And no man ought to address another man with that title. I know it's a bit of a rabbit trail, but there's only one Holy Father. It's only God. Okay, carrying on. Holy Father, underline this, keep them in your name. The name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, I'm going to save that second request, the oneness thing. I'm going to save that for two Sundays from now because Jesus is going to expand on that. I want to focus this morning on that first request. Father, keep them. It's very simple, very straightforward. Protect them. Protect them by the power of your holy name. What does he mean? Protect them physically, yes. Protect them spiritually. Keep them from error. Keep them from division. Keep them from stumbling. All of those things. And friends, if you haven't figured this out, this should be one of your constant prayers. The same thing. Father, keep me. Father, keep me. By the power of Christ, by the Spirit within me, keep me. Hold me. Protect me. Keep me from error. Keep me from becoming a divisive person. Keep me from stumbling into idolatry and sin. This is a great prayer for all of us. Listen, sometimes we overestimate our own strength, don't we? We overestimate our strength, and sometimes we get caught unaware. Listen, the world, your flesh, the devil are incredibly pervasive, incredibly seductive. We need divine help from our high priest. We do. So ask this prayer. Father, keep me. And in the end, by the way, and I think, I think Adam actually mentioned it in his prayer, be very glad that your continuing in Jesus doesn't depend on you or your strength because we would all fail. If it depended on us, we would all stumble away. And if you're like, oh, not me, then you're overestimating your strength. See, this is one of the things. Understanding human nature, understanding your own weakness, understanding the strength of the Lord. 
It's because of him that we continue in Jesus. So be thankful that we're kept by the Lord. Be thankful that he's the one that keeps us from falling and in the end can cause us to stand. We need that. So going back to where we started this morning, 16 years ago as we planted this church, we were just like the disciples on this night. We were not fully ready. There was true belief. There was a root of belief in us but we were still not prepared because we couldn't see into the future to see all the hurdles that we'd have to go through, to face the attacks that we would have to endure. But I can tell you this for sure. Our prayer back then was this simple, Lord, keep us. If it's your will, keep us, sustain us, protect us. And God was faithful to do that. And he still, even to this day, the reason we're here, the reason this church stands is because of God's sovereign will. And because of his sovereign protection. We don't overestimate our strength here at Oak Hill. We need our high priest. Amen? So Jesus said, I'm going away. No longer of this world. But my disciples will remain. And that is true of us today. We are modern day disciples. Uh, we, we can't see Jesus, right? Physically. So we are stuck down here. And it's not easy. It's okay to say that. It's not easy these days. You and I have the daunting task every day of living in a world that we don't belong to. Think about that. We have to live in a world that we don't belong to. Now, some of you are acting like you belong to it too much. But we don't belong to it. But we got to live in it. There are two kingdoms at war in this world. Can't forget that. That's why we have this whole passage about the armor of God. Two warring kingdoms. We're starting to see it more obviously right now. You're seeing the craziness of the world, the wickedness of this world. So it's getting more obvious. But we've been promised that this kingdom of this world that's out there, the prince of the world, that 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 kingdom is going to hate us and it's going to oppose us at every turn. But listen, we cannot hate the world in return. We cannot hate them in return. To the contrary, our job is to represent the kingdom of God and to infiltrate that kingdom with love and compassion. Let that change the way you think about this. We're called to infiltrate, right? Right? to charge the gates of hell, to get in there. But the motivation is love and it's compassion for the lost. Because listen, there are still lost people out there today who belong to the Lord. They belong to the Father. And it's our job now to go and to represent him and to call them out of the world and into the kingdom of his son so that we might let our lives shine before before people, so they might see us and hear words from our lips and hear scripture and say, I want to glorify your father in heaven. I want him to be my father as well. It's not easy, friends. It's not easy. But listen, this is the entire point of us needing Jesus' intercessory prayer. Because it's not easy. If you think it's easy, you don't realize how high the stakes are. You don't realize how much war is actually going on out there. This is why we need our great high priest. D.A. Carson puts it really well, summarizes it so well like he often does. He says, The Christian's task is not to be withdrawn from the world, nor to be confused with the world. Man, if we could just get that balance, we're ahead of the game. But to remain in the world, maintaining our witness to the truth by the help of the Holy Spirit and absorbing all the malice that the world can muster, protected by the Father in response to the prayer of Jesus. That is perfect. That is perfectly said. So may we be faithful to that calling and to that mission, 
to manifest the name and the glory of God in this world. Even in Christ, even as we wait for Jesus to return. And it will be so great when we see him with our eyes, right? But even in his absence, may we be faithful to that calling. And may we trust in his power, not our own. And may we align ourselves with his sovereign plan and his sovereign purposes. Amen? Father, as we uh, pray this morning with one heart, not a bunch of individuals, but as, as your body, the church, and as you hear our prayers this morning, as we, as we talk to you, Lord, may, may our prayers be like that incense that rises up into the heavenly realms and is a sweet fragrance to you because you love your children. And it's such a beautiful picture, Lord, to know that we can come to your throne of grace because we have an advocate and a high priest who even now is interceding for us. Lord, remind us how privileged we are as your children. Remind us about all that you have done for us, the, the, way, you have, the way you have taken care of us in so many ways, the way you keep us and protect us and guard us. And because of that, Lord, may we commit more and more of our life to you that it would change the way that we live both for our good and for your glory Lord so thank you for it Lord and and now we even thank you for a chance to sing praises and to give that we would worship you in everything that we do because you're worthy of our worship thank you Lord Jesus